You're listening to The Archive, a collection of sermons and teachings from Pastor Mike and his peers from days past. Stick around for timeless truths that still speak to the issues of our days. I don't know how anyone could hear that song without realizing his or her need for the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we do appreciate the fact that you are our substitute that you gladly bore the weight of the cross, both the physical pain and the spiritual pain, so that we might know you and know your Father and live forever. Thank you, dear Father, that you saw fit to give your Son to us so that we might have eternal life. And I pray through him that your Spirit would communicate to us tonight the very truths that we need to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Saturday before last, I celebrated, and I underscore the word celebrated, my 36th birthday. It was a profitable day, let me tell you. Among the gifts I received were $127, a lovely sports shirt, uh, three volumes on the book of Genesis, a cake and a bag of popcorn, and just a lot of other things. It was just, I tell you, I made a haul that day. It was tremendous. I ought to have a birthday about once a month if it's this so profitable. As I was thinking about what the Lord had given me through various people, some of whom are here tonight, I thought about how grateful I was to Him. And with all due respect to those of you who were the human agents of those gifts, it became very apparent to me for the umpteenth time that every worthwhile gift I ever receive has its source in God the Father. And I want to thank those of you who were a part of the gifts that I received on my birthday because I know that you first gave of yourself to the Lord before you gave of yourself to me. And that's basic. I want you to turn with me to the book of James tonight with the fact that every worthwhile gift which you or I receive has its roots in the heart of the Father. I want us to read two verses of Scripture and explore the meaning of these verses of Scripture for our lives tonight. I'm reading James 1, verses 17 and 18 from the New International Version of the Bible. I'll do a bit of interpretation as I read through so that I won't have to come back to these things later on during the message. Every good and perfect gift... Let me pause there for a moment. If you have a New American Standard Bible or a King James Version, your version reads something like this. Every good gift and every perfect gift. That is a more accurate translation because there are, in fact, two words for gift. Now, scholars are generally agreed that these words are synonyms. That is, they mean the same thing. So when the NIV translators came to this verse, they lump those two words together, and it communicates the same truth. But every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. Now, the NIV translators do a bit of interpretation here, perhaps more than the other translators. It is also generally agreed that what James was driving at when he makes this statement about the Father being the Father of heavenly lights, that he is making a reference to the fact that God the Father is the creator of the heavenly bodies, all those 
illuminations in the heavens which we see when we look heavenward. Reading further, who does not change like shifting shadows, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Since God the Father is the source of every worthwhile gift that you and I have, although he uses intermediaries to get those gifts into our lives, he uses go-betweens, usually human beings, to get those gifts into our lives, I think it's important that we understand the nature of this benevolent giver whom we know is our Heavenly Father. First of all, I would point to you the fact that God the Father is consistent. Look again at our passage of Scripture. The last part of verse 17 tells us that he does not change like shifting shadows. Probably in the back of James' mind was the fact that the most stable of all the heavenly bodies, let's say the sun, for instance, in his way of thinking, was an heavenly body which changed positions even momentarily from minute to minute it would change positions from day to day it would change positions in the heaven from month to month it would change positions but in comparison to the most stable heavenly bodies the father who created those heavenly bodies never changes there's a big theological term for that characteristic of god it's described as the immutability of god god does not change now what difference does that make to you one very obvious difference it makes to me is it highlights the difference between God the Father, who is in fact the creator of everything, and me. It highlights the difference between him and his creation, too. There is a law at work in the universe, so those who study these things tell me, known as the second law of thermodynamics. It goes under another title, the law of entropy, which basically means that everything is in a state of flux and the flux is downward. The change is in a disintegrating fashion. Everything is changing. It's deteriorating. It's decaying, except for one person in the universe, and that's God. What about you and me? Are you decaying? You are. Face it. I mean, some of us show our decay a lot worse than others, right? Because we've had longer to decay. But every one of us is decaying. We're deteriorating. We're moving toward death. But God the Father does not have that problem. He is consistent. Probably a more important difference that his being unchanging makes for me is the fact that because he is stable, I can be stable in my own security as his child. See, God chose me, the writer of the book of Ephesians tells us, before the creation of the world. In love, he predestined me now, if God were a changeable, capricious, whimsical God, he could just change his mind all the time, and you and I would never know whether we really were born-again people, whether we really were people who were headed for glory to spend eternity with him in heaven. But because God does not change, then you and I can relax in our relationship with him. We are fixed in our relationship to him if we are his children. Another factor involved in the character of God that comes forward in this passage of Scripture is that not only is he consistent, but his resources are inexhaustible. And let's look at verse 17, the first part. Every good and perfect gift is from above coming down 
This word translated coming down is in the present tense, suggesting that there is a steady stream of these gifts which the Father is showering upon us day in and day out, week in and week out. The Lord is that kind of Lord, one who is always giving and never exhausting the possibilities of the gifts that he can give to us. That should mean something to you and me. We can never deplete the resources of the Lord. If I can allude once again to the book of Ephesians, the third verse of the first chapter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with all the blessings in the spiritual realm. Every blessing conceivable has been showered on us already because we are in Christ. That is a tremendous truth. And those blessings just keep coming our direction. Now here's something else that might not meet your notice immediately regarding the nature of God. But he is always correct in his choice of gifts. I wish I had a penny for every minute I have spent trying to decide what to buy as a gift for someone else, don't you? Have you ever had that experience of going into shop after shop looking for just the right gift for someone and because we do not know exactly what will turn somebody on when we give it to them, we miss it sometimes. We fret over it. Let me tell you something. The word which is translated perfect in front of the word gift, every good and perfect gift, suggests this, that God, because he's all-knowing, knows exactly what you and I need precisely when we need it. So he gives us those gifts right on time. God is never off schedule. He's never late. His timing is always perfect, as well as his gifts. Now that should encourage you in your relationship to him, that he is that kind of God. Let's move now to consider the scope of the giver's benevolence. To what extent do these gifts which he gives us extend in our lives? How far do these gifts go? I'm going to put my Bible down for a minute and just talk with you. I want to refer to something which Paul said to the Corinthians. He said, what do you have that you did not receive? Now, he knew what the answer to that question is. Nothing. Everything you and I have is from the Lord. Absolutely everything. And John the Baptist, you remember when he had the encounter with his disciples, they were uptight that all the attention was going away from John the Baptist. It was moving in the direction of Jesus. And when his disciples came to him and they were really trying to say to him, Master, Rabbi, weren't you a bit hasty in all those nice things which you said about Jesus being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Couldn't you retract some of those things so that the limelight would swing back in our direction just like it was prior to that announcement? Listen to the wise words of John the Baptist. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You don't have anything, and I don't have anything which has not been given to us from heaven. What about your physical life? What about life, period? Life has been given to you as a gift from God, your physical life. And all the necessities which are required to carry on physical life have also been derived from the Father of heavenly lights. I love what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount when he's talking about the necessities of life in the sixth chapter. And after he's talked about, hey, you guys just need to relax. 
quit sweating it. I mean, after all, look at the lilies of the field. I mean, they are beautiful. Look at this grass in this field. It's going to dry up and be burned in some fire, but look how daintily arrayed it is. Your Father in heaven thinks more of you than he does of that grass. Or what about the birds of the field? They don't ever worry one minute about what they eat. And then Jesus comes down and he says, so you stop worrying and don't say, what shall I eat or what shall I drink or what shall I wear? For the pagans run after all these things. That's what consumes the world's thinking. And to the extent that you and I concentrate on material things, to the exclusion of concentrating on God, we are pagan. We're just like non-Christians. We are practical atheists in the way we live. And then Jesus goes on to say, your heavenly Father knows your needs. He knows everything that you need. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given, there's that word again, given to you as well. Everything we have physically, materially, belongs to the Lord. He's given it to us. He's entrusted us with those things. This matter of giving extends also into our emotional lives. I'm convinced that the biggest need that I see in my own life and in the lives of people just like you is the need for self-acceptance or self-esteem, any term that you might wish to give it. You, I think you understand what I'm talking about. To be loved, really, right? I refer you to the book of 1 John, the third chapter. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us and that he has allowed us to be called the children of God. The word translated what manner of is a word which means out of this world. The kind of love that the Father has for you and me is an out of this world kind of love. He accepts us just the way we are. We need to understand our position in Jesus Christ. Nothing will do more for your self-esteem and your emotional health than to realize that you're perfectly accepted in Jesus Christ. That's certainly not an excuse for misbehavior and sin in our lives and loose living, absolutely not. But I believe that if we really begin to get a grasp of who we are in Christ, it will have a radical effect on how we act as Christians because we won't have this burning need to try to please God, but we'll want to please Him because we want to love Him in return for the great benevolence that He has shown to us. And the beautiful thing about this love is he normally shows it to us through each other. Have you noticed that? Why do you think Jesus said over and over and over again in the closing part of the book of John, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. You and I are to be the agents of that love from the Lord to each other. And that binds us together. And in so doing, it meets a social need in our lives. The greatest need in any body of believers is love for each other after they have concentrated on loving the Lord. And then intellectual gifts are from the Lord. Every bit, and it may not be much in some of your cases, I'm not going to be the judge of that, but every bit of sense you have, every bit of your IQ was given to you by God. It's a gift. Your ability to function with your mind is a gift from the Lord. So you don't have any room to boast. If you're on the honor roll at school, no big deal. You probably ought to 
You're probably just doing a good job of what God's given to you, and some of you are on the honor roll, and you're not doing a good job of what God's given to you. So you make C's, and you're giving it your best shot. That's fine. God's given you the mind he's given you, and it's from him. And that leads me to say one other thing at this point. With those things in mind, he's given us our physical well-being in our life. He's given us our uh, emotional health. He's given us intellectual ability. All of our lives should be lived in the awareness that life is a gift. And that should affect the way we live. If it's a gift from the Lord, how should we live it? We should live it for the Lord. Every last minute of our lives should be lived for Jesus Christ and his glory. Now, the most important, in fact, the gift which makes all these other things relevant is the gift of the new birth. And James had that particularly in mind when he talks here. Let's look again at our passage of Scripture. Verse 18, He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of firstfruits of all he created. Earlier in the passage of Scripture, in verse 17, look at it once again, every good and perfect gift is from above. The new birth is from above. You know, I'm sure you do, the interchange that Jesus had with Nicodemus, the great teacher of Israel who came to him by night. In the third chapter of John, we have that interchange between Jesus and Nicodemus. Do you remember what Jesus said to him? Verily, verily, I say unto you, unless you are born, how? Again, you shall not see the kingdom of God. And then later on in the passage, Jesus is recorded as having said, you must be born again. If you have a New American Standard Bible in the margin, you will notice that the word born again, the word again is really an interpretation because literally it means from above. Unless you are born from above, it's the very word which James uses here in verse 17 when he says, every good and perfect gift is from above. The new birth is from above. Now consider the byproducts of this most relevant of all gifts which the Father has given to us. One is eternal life. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Isn't that a tremendous byproduct of the new birth? We're going to live forever with the Lord in a perfect state after this life. Turn over to Luke, the 11th chapter, the 13th verse, and listen to Jesus. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? How many of you have got the Holy Spirit? Some of you don't know, do you? Well, let me tell you, you need to ask Him, that is the Father, to give you the Spirit if you don't. I'm of the persuasion that if you have Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. The problem with most Christians is that the Holy Spirit doesn't have them. The Holy Spirit needs to get a hold of you. I think that's part of what Jesus had in mind here when He says, Ask the Father, and he'll give you the Spirit. And part and parcel of that receiving of the Spirit is that you have spiritual gifts. We're going to have a splendid opportunity, as I've already mentioned this week, to be informed about our gifts. I want you to turn over to 1 Peter, 
the fourth chapter, in the tenth verse, I'm not going to give a long discourse, you can relax about the gifts of the Spirit, I'm going to leave that to Dr. McGorman, but I want you to look at verse 10 and I want you to think about something with me. 1 Peter 4.10 says, Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. Why has God given us spiritual gifts? To put on display? To impress people with? To fondle? To enjoy? Well, certainly to enjoy, but to enjoy in the process of serving others. It's high time that Northside Baptist Church understands that you have not been given a gift for your own personal pleasure if you're a Christian. And it's time that we move away from the false kind of thinking that says the pastor is to do everything. The pastor is to make all the house calls and all the hospital calls and all the witnessing and make all the decisions. Why, if that were so, only one person in the church would have any spiritual gifts, right? Right? This church will never be as effective for the Lord as it otherwise would be until you get serious about finding and putting into practice your gift. And the reason that many of you don't know what your gift is, you've spent a long time, you've been to Bill Gothard, and you've heard his perspective. You may have read a book by Kenneth Kane Kinghorn on the gifts of the Spirit. You may have read everything you get your hands on the gifts of the Spirit, but there's no apparent usefulness of the God's Spirit in your life. Let me tell you one reason why. That could be because you're too self-centered. And from a reading of the last part of Hebrews 5 and the first part of Hebrews 6, the gifts are given when they're needed. And I mean, if you're just sitting around on your hands, they're not being needed, are they? Right? You and I need to find out what our gifts are and operate in the area of our spiritual gifts if we're going to be honoring as a body of believers to Jesus. Individuals can be honoring to the Lord, but I'm convinced that the Lord wants honor out of the whole body here, not just a handful of people. The beautiful thing that happens when that is true is that you get blessed as you minister through your spiritual gift and dependence upon the Holy Spirit of God. Now, the Father also gives us the kingdom, and I'm not going to get into that because time is running out on us tonight. He does give us the kingdom and a place in the kingdom. It's the kind of kingdom where the man we read about and studied about this morning out of the book of Luke, where a robber becomes royalty and where criminals wear crowns. It's that kind of kingdom. Aren't you glad to be a part of that kind of kingdom? You are a part of that kind of kingdom if you are a child of the Lord. Turn back to James for just a few more moments. And notice the ground of the new birth. How is a person born again or born from above? Look at verse 18. He chose, let's stop right there, he chose to give us birth. It was his choice. You were born again, not by the will of the flesh, not, nor by the will of man, but of the will of God. Nobody is in the family of God except for the fact that God chose you. You were dead in sin and trespasses according to the book of Ephesians. And then Jesus in his grace and the Father in his grace reached down and gave you the gift of eternal life. The ground is the will of the Father. The means is the word of God. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth. Peter substantiates this in 1 Peter where he talks about how 
you have been born again by the living and abiding Word of God. The message of the Gospel was sent to us by the Spirit of God, and we were raised from the dead spiritually. And then the purpose of all this is given in the last part of verse 18, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all He created. What is all this business about first fruits? Well, there are a couple of possibilities. If you know anything about the Old Testament system of sacrifice, the Israelites were an agrarian society. They were farmers. And when they came to the time of the year to bring sacrifices, they would bring the best of their livestock and the first of their livestock, which were born in the new year, and the best and the first of their produce from the land as a sacrifice of the Lord. And that was to say hey, this first fruit is special and it's the best. And it was also a way of God saying, I'm fulfilling my promise to you that I made to you before you went into the land of promise, that I was going to meet your needs. Now that's tremendous, isn't it? What God says to us through this word is that we are special to him. There's another possibility, and I really think this is more accurate. And this possibility is that James was thinking of the fact that that first generation, I guess we could call them, of Christians was merely a down payment which God was making, telling the world that there was going to be a greater harvest that was going to be gathered in as a result of what Jesus had done dying on the cross. The reason we can believe this is because we read in 1 Corinthians 16, 15 about how Stephanus was and his household were the first fruits of the gospel in the area of Corinth. That means they were the first ones who were born again in that area. And then Epinitus, over in Romans, the 16th chapter, in the 5th verse, is supposedly the first fruit of the gospel in another region. So the beautiful fact of the matter is, whichever these interpretations is correct, you and I are special to the Lord. And we are just part of a large harvest which the Lord is gathering. Four implications of what we've studied tonight. Let me share them with you in quick fashion. What does the truth that God the Father is the source of every worthwhile gift mean to you and me? First of all, it means that, or it results in a deterrence of pride. It keeps us from boasting about all the things we have and all the things we do. It cuts down on pride. Number two, it ensures our gratitude. If we understand that every gift comes from the Lord, we're going to be grateful to the Lord. And by the way, as far as I'm concerned, there's nothing that brings glory to God like a person who is grateful to God and says that. I thought about when Jerry was talking about Christopher tonight and how he was talking to me about what had happened. I mean, he, he was grateful that God had spared Christopher any more hurt than he did. Now, the other perspective would have been to say, oh me, poor Christopher, poor Christopher. But the positive attitude, I tell you, it made me glorify the Lord when I heard what Jerry said before the worship service and probably made you have the same reaction when he shared that during our sharing time. Gratitude to God. We just need to well up together in gratitude to God for everything, just praising and thanking the Lord. And let me tell you something, he's going to get the glory. And that's what he's jealous of. It's really the only thing he's concerned about is his glory. He wants it. He's going to get it. A third implication is that there should be no room for feelings of inferiority on your part. 
God in his wisdom has given you what he has given you and entrusted to you what he's entrusted to you. You know the story of the master who left some talents behind in the hands of those three different servants? He gave five to one, didn't he? And he gave two to another and he gave one to the other. I identify most quickly with the one, the one he gave one, you know. Oh, Lord, uh, you know, look at Joe. You gave him two. And you gave Bill five. What can I do, Lord? you ever feel like that? You ever get down in the mouth because of what God hasn't given you? Is there anybody here who hears what I'm saying tonight? <laughs> right? Instead of focusing on that one talent that God's given me, God in His sovereignty has given us what He's given us. And we need to get grateful about it. Let me tell you what. I believe that as you get grateful for it, He adds to it. Now, that shouldn't be your motive for being grateful, but I've seen that in my own life. Be grateful for it, and he'll add to it because he knows you're going to be grateful for what he adds to it. And then he's going to be grateful for what he adds to that, and on and on and on and on. That's exactly the way I believe the Lord operates in our lives. Back to that parable one more time. The man I most admire is the one with two talents. Right in the middle, Mr. Average Person. I mean, not many of us are at the bottom of the heap. There's only one down there. Not many of us are at the top. There's only one there. But there's a whole bunch of us in the middle, right? A whole bunch of us. And that person, I mean, he didn't gripe or complain. He just went out there and used those two talents, and he doubled them for his master. And that's exactly what you and I will do if we have the proper perspective on the gifts that we have. We'll glorify the Lord with those gifts. And then the last implication of this truth is simply this. As we grow in Christ's likeness, we will become more giving. This church needs a lot of growth in the area of giving. Giving of love, giving of money. It all belongs to the Lord. If you get like Jesus, you're going to exhaust your resources. You're going to exhaust yourself in giving to other people. Let's pray.